What's up, queens? Welcome to the Female Dating Strategy Podcast, the meanest female-only podcast on the internet. I'm Ro. And I'm Savannah. And Lilith is out again this week, but we have a guest here, Professor Jana Matthews from Rollins College, author of the book, The Benefits of Friends Inside the Complicated World of Today's Sororities and Fraternities. And I have to say, how I found you was I found, uh, I was reading a Slate article about the unequal gender ratios of parties at fraternities. And I, as a person who wasn't in a sorority, but went to a lot of fraternity parties, like I never, it never clicked together that that's what was happening. So like when I read that, I was like, oh, that's why there was always like a bunch of women there and like no men. And there was a discussion in this article about the changing demographics of campus, because uh, as we've said here, a lot of men are just not going to school, their needs, they're not in education, ed- employment or training. So the gender ratios of campus has started to get really, really skewed. So like just kind of researching you and then like and actually looking through your book, I was like, oh, this is actually research on what's happening on campus with sororities and fraternities and how that's changing the gender dynamics. And it was really, really fascinating because there's a lot of like dynamics that if you're not inside of that world, you may not know about because like clearly they very closely guard a lot of the um, information, but also because like dating on campus, even if you're not if you're in a sorority or not, is like hard mode. So I was really interested in anybody (laughs) who, because we talk about this, like it is the one place where men clearly have the advantage in most colleges because of the fact that the gender ratios are so skewed now. The only consolation I like to say is that, okay, well, there's the military where it's the opposite. So like with our our friend Elle from our other political podcast, where she was talking about there's so few women in the military that like then the gender dynamics are often in women's favor as far as like dating. So I'm like, okay, so maybe there's balance in the world. But what was really interesting about this and why I really wanted to bring in the podcast because I'm like, first of all, not having, I have myself not having been part of a sorority, but also like not completely understanding what to do about the campus dynamics. Like this was a really, really good breakdown and fascinating breakdown of uh, what goes on and then like what we can do about it. So welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm just delighted to be here and uh, thrilled to have this conversation. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to start, I want to talk about some of the more lurid stories of this book that are really fascinating about what happens like with the dynamics of first of all, getting recruited in a sorority and then like how the sororities end up reinforcing a lot of the toxic behavior of the fraternities. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so I can definitely start there. I, I think to to back up a little bit. I mean, as you said, the there's women outnumber men on campus about about a ratio of of sixty to forty, and that's not across the boards. So I think at technical colleges, for example, the the ratio will be flipped. But sort of use your average campus. There's about fifty percent more women than than men. And as you talked about, any time within a heterosexual dating community, that minority gender controls that dating script. And so heterosexual men have a competitive edge over women just in general. And it's, it's not just college. So you think about the vibe of what it's like at a sports bar and where there's always more men than women. And women are going to, in those kind of scenarios, are going to get a lot more attention and basically have her pick of who she brings home at night. And so fraternities, on the other hand, or, you know, college campuses are kind of in that reverse role where they're the gender minority. And so therefore they have the ability to call the shots. Want me to talk a little bit about like how fraternities engineer the social scene? Yeah, let's start there then. Okay. Yeah. 
Sure. So fraternities engineer the social scene so they can have even more power, even even though they already are um, have, a, have a ton of power in that situation. And they do that through what I kind of call a fraternity party population control. So one fraternity chapter will often mix with multiple sorority chapters at one time. So you'll, you'll go to a party and there'll be just the fraternity members in that particular group. And then there'll be just women from all over the place. And it's sometimes just even opened up to sort of all women, you know, on campus are invited to those places. So that's one way. And then the other way is that if fraternities want to narrow and want to make that gender divide even greater, they will often take the men in their own chapter, the younger men in particular, so the freshmen and sometimes the sophomores, and they will basically take them out of commission by making them work during the event. So they're the designated drivers, they're picking up, dropping off, they're you know serving alcohol. They're not really in a mode by which they can interact with the other women. And so as a result, that's exactly why it feels like there are so few men and so many women at these parties, because there are. And they do that to increase the odds that they're going to find somebody who will be willing to hook up with them. Yeah, I didn't realize to the extent that they were actively socially engineering that. In hindsight, it just seems so obvious, right? But I just, for whatever reason, because I wasn't plugged into the fraternity sorority system, like I would just kind of go to the parties when I would hear them advertise. It didn't occur to me that they were deliberately trying to skew that ratio. So like hearing that as like a concrete thing now makes sense to me. Like, oh, okay. It was always set up for them to have the strategic advantage. And as ourselves being a strategy focused podcast, I love that that's being highlighted in like your book, because for people who don't know who are somewhat outsiders like myself, know that when you're going to the fraternity that they are deliberately trying to engineer the ratio so that you are, that the women are in the majority enough to guarantee that their frat bros will be able to hook up with somebody. Yeah, absolutely. It's 100% strategic. And even the research that I did, and I had the opportunity, I I served as a fraternity advisor on my campus. So I worked with a a high, we call like a high tier chapter. So one of the most desirable chapters on campus. And so I worked with them for several years and went to all of their events and kind of observed them. But then I also visited dozens of campuses around the country and also talked with people from over 50 different universities to try to make sure that like what I was seeing on my campus wasn't just unique to the culture of of my college, but was was reflective and heard multiple, multiple times and saw in many, many, many instances that it was absolutely strategic, right? To the point where they will say, you know, we need to get more women here. You know, the ratio isn't is, isn't great enough. And so then they would send out texts or they would have the women who are in attendance say, you know, you need to get your friends here. And so leave and don't come back until you bring X number of other friends with you. So Besides just the ratio, how else are fraternities engineering the sexual scene to guarantee their hookups? Like I have, there's a few points in the book that I'll point out, but I'll allow you to take the floor first. (laughs) Sure. I think the other way that they do it is just structurally. So on any campus, you will have, there will always be more fraternity chapters in relationship to sorority chapters. So they're on, you know, a given campus. There's one that I will, won't say the name, but there are seven sorority chapters and then there's like 18 or 19 fraternity chapters. And so each sorority chapter, the way that sororities work is that they try to spread out the number of members fairly evenly. So each sorority chapter will have roughly the same number of women. And then the fraternity chapters, on the other hand, there is no rule or regulation. So you could have a fraternity chapter that has five or six members, and then you could have one that has a hundred. And so what that really means is, again, like if you have a fraternity chapter that is mixing with a sorority or multiple sororities, you're always going to have more women than men just by virtue of how that system's set up. So that's like one kind of big way that they do that. The other way that, that it's sort of structurally engineered to increase hookup culture is that 
fraternities, they're allowed to serve alcohol at their fraternity houses. They can have parties there and sororities are not allowed to. And that's across the board. And so, and the reason it has to do with liability. So sorority houses are beautiful and gorgeous. And, you know, you can just sort of look on any town and country or Pinterest board and you can and see these pictures of these mansions that are stunning. And obviously the organizations that run them and own those houses do not want them trashed. So they have really, really strict rules about who can enter in that into that space and what events can be housed there. And almost no social events can be housed there. And then they even have extra rules preventing or governing sororities off-campus parties. But off-campus parties, are run, if you have to rent a space, it's expensive. It requires a lot of planning. There's money involved. And so it's just, it's not really a viable option. Fraternity houses are usually a lot grosser. And the reason is because they can have parties there, right? And they don't care. Word. Yeah. <laughs> Right. And so they have all like, and fraternities have this massive liability insurance clause in there that allows them to take those kinds of risks and invite people into their space. And so as a result, like women are really partying and the social scene on college campuses take place in fraternity houses almost exclusively or the local campus bars that are attached to fraternity row. And so men control how much alcohol is consumed, who consumes it, where, you know, when you're having a party essentially down the hall from someone's bedroom, you know, the odds are that the party is going to migrate into one of those spaces becomes pretty high. Yeah. And I I don't know to the extent that this is true, but I know there was like rumors in a lot of different campuses that part of the reason why there weren't as many sorority houses was because of like old school brothel laws. But I didn't know if that was true or if that was an urban myth. No, it's not an urban myth in in some senses. And that was that law like originated particularly in the South. They kind of rose up at the same time as women were coming to colleges in general and that people like were, women lived in boarding houses. And so because that, there wasn't any space for them to live on campus, they were barred from living on campus. And so it was sort of an, a, basically a anti-feminist, anti-women enactment to try to get women away from college campuses. Most of that, most of those rules are sort of highly outdated. Um, women, like sororities do have houses and that's that's not an active kind of rule or law. In fact, there are almost an equal number of sorority houses and fraternity houses, at, at least in the sense that if there is a chapter, then a sorority might have it, will we'll have a house. But there just are more fraternity houses. And because there are more fraternity chapters than sorority chapters in anywhere. One of the things I found fascinating too was like the date engineering that also goes on from fraternities. Like I didn't know that there was like specifically them trying to coerce like individual relationships. Yeah. So that's a strategy that I think that sororities use actually, I think, to fight back against this, that this gender ratio disparity. So if you are a sorority member, you might, a heterosexual sorority member, you might think, oh my gosh, like there's really no chance for me because I'm playing the odds. And it's like playing Powerball every time you walk into a fraternity party. And so what sororities are have doing it is that they form sororal teams and I kind of call them like Peloton. So in the Tour de France, which is a professional bike race, you've got riders, they ride in packs and one will lead for a little bit and then they'll drop back to the back and then the next person will take his place. And the reason why they do it is because it's a way of distributing the workload. So the front rider takes the headwind, but only for a short period of time. And so each person kind of gets their chance to rest and recover and then also lead the team. And so if you are a sorority group or sorority, you have a bunch of sorority chapter the odds are not really great that you're going to kind of fight your way to the top or to the finish line on your own. And so you need help and assistance. And so what they do is they need a Peloton and in French, Peloton means platoon. And I really like that kind of militaristic metaphor because that kind of is what they're doing is going to battle. And so 
what they do is a sorority member will like claim a man and they have to have some sort of evidence to prove that that it's not just a far fetch, right? They have to be DMing, they have to be hooking up, or they have to have some kind of tangential connection. And then all the women mobilize to help assist that sorority woman make a connection with that man more permanent, whether it's, you know, hooking up with his friends or sort of greasing the wheels, uh, trying to put them in places where they can be together. And the goal is, is that if they can get that woman with a fraternity man at, the, at sort of a semi-permanent hookup partner in an ideal world, like a boyfriend-girlfriend scenario, then that benefits them because then they have access to that particular fraternity chapter. And so that's really how, so sororities are, or sort of sorority teams are competing, not with each other, members of their own group, but they're competing with sorority teams from other chapters. So it's like they're all engaged in this competition to see who can get their most members like accepted by the fraternity. Yeah, right. And that's particularly true with the high tier chapter. So you as a sorority want to be paired with a high tier male chapter and there might be two or three other chap sorority chapters who are kind of in contention, maybe have the same status as you, have equally beautiful women, you know, everyone's sort of like hot and wonderful and you want to kind of get get your in with this one chapter. And so the best way to do that is to have as many of your members pair up or be hooking up with as many of that fraternity chapters as possible into, and in doing so, black out, blackball the other ones. Is there any like formality to the fraternities that have relationships with sororities? Because I know, at least among like black fraternities, there's somewhat of a formality between a few of them. Yeah, black fraternities and sororities are kind of, a, they're all in this sort of same family, but I would put them in a different category because they, were started completely for completely different reasons. And a lot of them, the bonds that they have are structurally in place from the time of their origin, you know, when they were formed. Like white fraternities and sororities don't have that kind of like sister sorority kind of meet, right? It's not like you've got Kayos who are constantly paired with Fidelts at any, you know, on a national level. It really happens on a local level. And those bonding and those relationships will rotate in a like ebb and flow depending upon who is hooking up with who. And so it is one of the reasons why like in Greek life, why there's so much tension between sororities where fraternities don't really care about each other. They're not like going, you know, they might get into little skirmishes, but there's not sort of this animosity towards other chapters usually in the way that sororities do. And that's because they're kind of competing with each other for access to men. That's so interesting. So it's like structurally pick me. Oh, it's totally like, I think that's fascinating, right? So they're all pick me shows, you know, just like in that level. (laughs) Yeah. Well, like I said, it's different from like, at least for like a lot of black fraternities, like they do kind of have like paired up fraternity sorority houses. And then also like there is tension between this, this, the fraternity houses, like it's more like a gang. These guys like have their colors and there's a little bit more of like uh, tension there, which I think balances the gender dynamics a little bit more than what it seems like is happening on these other fraternities. So that's fascinating. Like that's a completely different structural, like from the top down, like it already puts women at a disadvantage if like the connections between the fraternity and sorority houses aren't already innate. And then it's completely dependent on like how acceptable the women of that particular house are in relation to the fraternity. And they can't even throw their own parties to subvert the power of the fraternities on campus if they wanted to. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, I could change one thing, it would really be that because I I think that the whole culture of fraternity, white fraternities and fraternities would profoundly change if women could throw their own parties. And that sounds really simple, and I'm not the first to say it. But, you know, we are not, we don't live in an era where anymore where we need to be 
invited to go on dates or invited to socialize or sort of be put at the whim of, of men. But that system is really putting us in an antiquated position where we have to kind of sit around and like the only thing we can do to have a social life is to make yourself attractive to men so that you'll get invited to their parties. And that's just like a screwed up way of kind of raising this generation of women to think that like they're, they have to be passive in their own sort of social and like romantic desire. This puts like a uh, podcast, like call her daddy in a lot better perspective. Cause I was like, so confused by it. Honestly, I was like, why would anybody do this? <laughs> like, why would you fuck these guys just to go to their fraternity party? Cause like, I'm like, couldn't you just do it? And like, cause as a person who got invited to different fraternity parties, because they were trying to skew that gender ratio, I was like, I think I pretty much went to all the same parties y'all went to. And it wasn't that big of a deal, but it's, it's about like building the reputation of the house itself. And then like forging those bonds. So that dynamic, I think was, I was totally missing that dynamic that like this book really helped fill in for me. Thank you. I I think, and I'm an outsider as well. So I went to an institution where they didn't have fraternities and sororities. It wasn't part of my culture. And then when I became a professor, my college uh, at the time when I started here, it was 50% of the student body was Greek. I mean, other than kind of Elle Woods, I had no idea really what was going on. And so I I had to kind of do a crash course and figuring out what these people were talking about and what was happening. And so, yeah, I like the benefit of, of kind of being an inside outsider, you know, to this whole population, but it's totally riveting. It's like a cat show kind of, you know, you just got to stand back and say, what is this? Yeah. I would say I never got involved in sorority because I remember like asking someone like, oh, so what's great about being a sorority? Like what happens? And the woman that I asked was like, well, if you don't already know, then it's not for you. And I was like, (laughs) okay, bitch. I don't care that much about it. Like, And that was pretty much the beginning and end of my uh, sorority aspirations because I couldn't get a straight answer about like why I wanted to be a part of it. And I guess, and I guess I would be described as a goddamn independent, yeah. like the GDI. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Basically, because I didn't know anything about it. And I was just asking in earnest, right? And then like, it was sort of like, well, if you don't already know, then you're not one of us. I'm like, okay, sure. <laughs> I, I think it's really interesting is, is that like fraternities and sororities at the organizational level, that like sort of national level are really, really aware of recruitment and that that's really their lure into these organizations. And as freshmen, you know, the organizations like all recruit what they call values-based recruitment. So they're recruiting for brotherhood and sisterhood and compassion, you know, like all these kinds of nebulous values that we all adhere to and we all want in a friend group. But, you know, 18-year-olds are not motivated by that. Some of them just want people to hang out. They want friends and that's altruistic. But if you ask the majority of them, you're saying like, what is drawing you to this specific thing, this specific organization or something else, they just say, well, well, we want to have a social life. And I think that's that's another bigger kind of structural problem is that colleges and universities have really relegated the social life of their institutions to fraternities and sororities. So like they hate them, but they need them because they're not willing or able to compete or entertain their own students. Okay. So kind of a side note. So uh, USC recently was trying to get the fraternities to pledge to take uh, sexual assault that was happening in their frat houses and their quote unquote rape culture more seriously. And the fraternities opted to completely disassociate with USC. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's happening more and more. And it's fascinating. There's a difference between like the chapter, which is kind of like the local branch and then the headquarters, which are 
run by adults and they're, it's a, you know, it's a business. So these are for-profit institutions. And so the, the headquarters are really upset with them. They don't want them to disaffiliate because it, it looks bad for them because they become rogue. And a lot of these guys will still, still wear their letters and like act as if, and, and kind of run themselves as if they're a fraternity chapter, but just not have any regulation or oversight. So there's a brand issue. It's the same kind of thing of like a luxury brand. And then you've got counterfeiters. Mm-hmm. And so counterfeiters like give the real brand like a bad name. So, and then the institution of course hates them, hates that idea because they like to have some level of pretend control over these organizations. But from the men themselves, you know, they understand the market value of what they're offering and they have a specific talent or skill or gift and, or like, you know, and the ability to throw parties and to sort of become, become a social hub. And so they see all the rules being imposed upon them as being extraneous and sort of, you know, they don't need association, they don't need affiliation in order to run. And so that's why they're doing it. And I think it's sort of like this, I think that the backstory behind that particular case is not that they're just refusing to support measures to control sexual assault and violence. Like that makes them sound horrible. They're pressing back on like the sort of the whole body of rules and regulations, which involves having designated drivers or like recording your event and having it registered in advance. Like there's just like it's really, really complicated and actually like technical to run a fraternity and sorority on a campus. And so they just feel like it's a bunch of red tape. So that might be like the one kind of the sticking point. But the reality is, is that it's just they're just irritated in general with having to follow rules. Yeah. I wonder if other campuses do crack down. Like, does it actually affect the prestige of the school? Because I'm wondering if like, who's at the advantage there? Is the fraternity at the advantage or is the school at the advantage? So in both of them really run liability issues. We have had that happened many times at Rollins too, where there a sorority that I happened to be advising was had their charter terminated by the national organization. At the time I was advising them, so that was fun. But then the existing members went on and kind of ran an underground organization for several years. And so it's, you know, there's there's like lots of risk management issues because I think the idea is, is that if we if an institution knows that a chapter is running and they don't do anything about it and a light, and something happens at that chapter, like someone's injured or dies or whatever, then they're ultimately responsible for it. So there's that issue. Yeah, I think it's on some levels, I so I completely understand from an institutional standpoint, but the case of USC, I think that the point that they happen to make an issue on is a really bad one. But in general, I do understand why chapters want to, you know, sort of say like, this is what, what am I paying dues for? If I could do all of these things without any oversight, then that seems like if you're 18 or 19 years old, like something that would be really enticing <laughs> to you. I guess I'm sort of on the university side because it's like, why take the additional liability on? Oh, sure. No, I'm absolutely too. But I I think if you put yourself in the shoes of fraternity members, it's entrepreneurial of them to want to branch out, right? Like that's what what they're telling. You learn how to do something from an organization. You learn how to run a party. You learn how to run an organization effectively. And then you take that idea and you just do your own. And and that's kind of how they're, they're thinking about it. So the thing that might backfire on them is that now if it's outside of the jurisdiction of the university, then people, women, if they are being assaulted, will just go directly to the police or they should anyways. Like if I would imagine it's not now covered by Title IX. No, it actually is. So I think it's, yeah. So if you are a student, no matter where it happens, any student is subject to Title IX regulations. 
So I guess if like a fraternity member of an, in an unregulated, regardless of where he is, commits sexual assault against a non-university student, then he could be subject, I mean, he could be called in, but they can't really do a whole lot or they couldn't manage that. But if, if it is a student, if it's a female student who is assaulted by a male student, regardless if that happens at a bar or if that happens, you know, wherever it does, in what, whatever context, then it is fully subject to Title IX. Yeah, that's true. So speaking of sexual assault, so there's a lot of space dedicated to dynamics of sexual assault, how they've been happening within the context of the fraternity and sorority relationship, and then the fallout. The fallout was really, really depressing and somewhat surprising to me from some of the women who did come forward with things that are very, very clearly rape and very, very clearly sexual assault, things that aren't like, I don't think any reasonable person would hear the details and think this was actually a gray area in any way, shape, or form. But there's a couple of cases in here that you highlighted, and also things like revenge porn or like women being filmed without their consent, having those types of things uh, shared among other fraternity members. So do you want to maybe start with a few of the stories that you touched on in the book about sexual assaults and then what happened? Yeah. So I think one of the ones that was most harrowing for me to listen to and have to engage with was sorority member who you know, this is a really kind of metaphor for how these things like all happen, right? Was out drinking with her friends as all sort of, I mean, as, as most, but as, as you're wont to do. And then she went back to her apartment with a small group. And so she went with one of her female friends, another sorority sister and her sorority sister's boyfriend. There's another guy with her kind of rounding up the foursome. They were hanging out, watching the movie, had some drinks, and she just got too drunk. And so she went in her room and she just kind of said, I'm going to bed, guys. And then she woke up the next morning and realized that she had been very clearly raped and kind of had to make, she reached out to me and kind of like walked her through that process of, of her options and tried to get her to go to Title IX, which is a sort of campus office that's helped to, you know, kind of can walk her through some sort of like both legal options and options with what the school was really reluctant to do that. And uh, I did, as a mandatory reporter, have to report her to Title IX, but she just chose not to follow up with them, which is also her prerogative and her right. But what she ended up doing is something that I saw out of across the board that became is just sort of standard operating procedure is that instead of going to Title IX or to the police, or to the school in any other capacity, she just turned on her friend and kind of blamed her friend for that, uh, that particular incident. I mean, she was upset with the rapist. And of course, like he should never have done that. But as she's deciding and weighing the options of who she should be most mad at, and like, you know, dedicate or sort of direct her ire, um, it landed on her female friend or sorority sister. And it was things that she was saying were, you shouldn't have left me alone. You knew how drunk I was. How could you let him come in? Why didn't you stop this? you know, all those kinds of things, which are perfectly normal reactions. And, you know, as that played out and as I never included, a, again, another a story in here that I had not heard dozens of times to make sure that it wasn't sort of a one-off. But in that particular case, it, it played out like all the others where it was, you know, weighing the options of where, of what outcome you want or what you need in that moment. Title IX and the police and any other sort of formalized reporting system is inaccurate and unpredictable at best. So you're putting yourself in a position to have to go do this reporting where it's like it becomes largely like a he said, she said kind of thing. They're both drinking. There's uh, tons and tons of reporting. Like the women who go through Title IX, have it, it, the number of times that they have to retell their story in like sort of increasingly public venues is traumatizing and is really hard. And then the outcome on the other end is almost never satisfactory, which means like very, very, very few sexual assault cases get what they want and may need, which is an apology from the perpetrator, a legal resolution that makes them you know, have provide any level of justice. 
But their friends, on the other hand, provide exactly what they need, which is allowing themselves to be blamed, you know, emotional, crying, upset, apologetic. So I somewhat perceived it differently when I was reading it. So like it's that seemed actually that that aspect of it seemed to have evolved because some of the earlier stories were about how the sorority sisters often just like immediately sided with the frat member. And that insofar as like there's been evolution on the conversation of sexual assault among sororities, it's been what you said that like suddenly the sorority sort of issues an apology to that happened and then saying that we failed each other as sisters to protect you. But it also seemed to me like that the sororities are then running interference. <laughs> like it actually bothered me, even though I think that's a great thing for them to do. I also think that there's a liability aspect of it where they're like, they're almost running in interference from the fraternities being held accountable under Title IX or criminally. Yeah, I can give another good, good example of that. So I, I mentioned many, um, several of my book. I had what happened to me just a few months ago where a sorority sister uh, woman came in and reported a sexual assault. Again, sent her to Title IX. She was, she actually wanted to work with Title IX, but in the process of it was, you know, kind of consulting with her sorority sisters. And the sorority sisters were, you know, like, oh, we'll take care of it. We'll take care of it. And so they were kind of, conversing and engaging with the fraternity and the fraternity leadership. And the discussion there was they came back and they said, well, the fraternity doesn't want you to report. They said that they'll take care of it internally. And so like, here's why you should consider that option. Like if you recognize that if you report that we will lose that relationship and that they won't invite us to formal, we'll be seen as sort of like tattletales. Like, you know, the school will never, will never do a good job. This will be bad for all the fraternities and sororities in general. Like, you know, it's like you're kind of ruining our, everyone's social life if you report this. And so the resolution on that one is that that one had like a semi- not a semi-positive, but like the fraternity chapter did suspend, not expel that fraternity member. And so, you know, right now he's sort of sitting on informal probation, like sort of secret probation. And, you know, I'm sure he'll reemerge in the group. But, it, you know, in the meantime, I have this woman who's coming to my office all the time. He just is sort of emotionally devastated because she's really caught between a rock and a hard place. She'll lose her friends and her social life and these connections to this fraternity. Because, you know, some dude decided to push her in the bathroom and like grope her and, you know, do some other things to her against her consent. Yeah, it's wild to me that like the language has changed to be a little bit more of a softer touch than like the flat out like, oh, this person's a slut and we're denying that it happened to like, oh, we're going to like comfort you while coercing you to still behave in the way that we want you to, which is to like not report and not jeopardize a relationship with the fraternity. So that like, I just found that kind of like, I don't know, like kind of disappointing. <laughs> It's like they're better at PR now, but they haven't like structurally changed the problem. Yeah, I would say that. So yeah, they're better at PR and then, but there still is sort of slut shaming that's going on. And, and maybe I think if we've acknowledged the fact that I'm seeing less of people sort of saying like, well, you're a whore, you're a slut because you like, you know, had sex or you've had sex with multiple partners. It's more of just the denying of the seriousness of it because hookup culture is really casual. And so it's like, what's the big deal? It's much more like, are you sure that that, you know, aren't you reading too much into this? And like, it's that kind of stuff. It's like, you know, it didn't really mean anything. And so because hookup culture is casual, you shouldn't assign more meaning to it than it was. And so if you didn't want to do it, then like, we respect that. But also like, you know, there's a lot of things we don't want to do that we didn't doing and we get regret. And, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just really convoluted and almost more damaging narrative than, than just calling someone a slut or whore. 
Yeah, that reminds me of the tits of the hour story from your book. That's basically the dynamic that they set up to explain like some of the, I don't want to call it smaller to minimize it, but like the things that are sexually coercive and clearly violations of boundaries, but may or may not be, have enough evidence for the criminally prosecuted. Although like now there's revenge porn laws, but do you want to explain the tits of the hour story? Yeah. So fraternities, and this is not just fraternity. I think you can definitely apply it to, to sort of male friend groups and even like female friend groups, right? We, we, we are on text chains and there will almost all, they always have check chains or group me's within fraternity chapters and Snapchat, right? And Snapchat. And Snapchat. Before we get into the rest of the story. So I didn't know about it, about even Spie- or Evan Spiegel, sorry, the CEO of Snapchat that was also accused of like, he, there's some like some uh, text messages that were uh, revealed of him like peeing on some girl like in his sleep or something like that. And the fact that like the actual CEO of Snapchat was caught up in a lot of these activities where he was sharing, let's say, sensitive information about the women and just kind of proves our point, which you've made like multiple times that nobody but skirts has Snapchat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Evan Spiegel was a fraternity member at Stanford when he invented Snapchat. And he kind of really clearly outlines the idea about why he wants to do it. And a huge portion, a huge part of the motivating factor was the ability to like circulate and share like unsavory and really offensive messages that would they would, they would never be able to be traced. Um, and, he, and he did that through group talks, you know, with his uh, with his fraternity brothers. And so, if we think about Snapchat as kind of originating from a fraternity house, then it explains exactly what I'm going to tell, right? Which is that that Snapchat and that group texts um, or group me sort of exist within fraternity chapters for sort of like ex- sharing of explicit materials. And so, oftentimes they're they're exchanging porn that they get from the internet or sort of you know just all sorts of kind of we've kind of put it into this category of like frat boy humor. And then along with that are images of and sort of text messages and other kinds of things from personal sort of sexual exploits that they might've had. So these are exchanging photos of, of women that they've, while the women are sleeping, that they just had sex with and all, the, all sorts of other things. And one of the, I think kind of most memorable stories that I, I heard from someone was she, it was a, a woman who was had sort of like a regular hookup. And like after that relationship ended, she was sent these images or this is this video of her giving a blowjob to her old hookup partner. And that video had been circulated or was circulating in a group chat in that, you know, in, in that fraternity chapter. And so she was really upset about it and went to the fraternity and just said, I, you know, sent this video anonymously. I know that you guys are circulating that. And they admitted that they had it um, and that they were circulating it. And they just said, it's not a big deal, right? Like you don't understand the amount of content that kind of goes through this group chat. And so they described it as being kind of, you know, this is sort of the tits of the hour kind of thing where uh, you were one of dozens of women or sort of videos like in that vein that we saw that day and it, like nobody really like I you know put any weight or value on it and that was sort of the explanation which okay I was that supposed to make her feel better like <laughs> <laughs> yeah I know like your tits are mid sis so we didn't look at it that much like <laughs> what <laughs> yeah there was another one and I actually didn't see it so I, I can't verify it but I've heard about it from like many many of my fraternity men there was this this is slightly different but there was a guy who had it had like a painting of him having sex with two other sorority women and like very specifically detailed like had hung it up over his bed and you know had that like hanging in his room for two years and and again I, I think you can sort of say like bad humor like horribly offensive but also just think about what that does to 
both the women who are featured in that painting, but also anybody who happens to see that painting. I mean, it's, it's changes and impacts them and the whole sorority community, frankly, forever. Yeah. I mean, it's disappointing because it, it does feel like the way that they're constantly able to subvert the what should happen when you're allegedly in a sisterhood, which is like banding together to assert power in that situation is that like if they have blackmail material, then they can also, you know, sort of sow discord where like women are more scared to speak out because they don't want that kind of stuff shared. So it's like they're constantly creating an environment where they either can skew the ratio in their favor, blame the women if anything untoward happens. And then get blackmail material. So even if they get a little bold, then they can threaten them in some way. Yeah. And I think when you have the existence of those kinds of group chats, there's this pressure that in order to fit in as a fraternity member, then everyone has to be an equal contributor to that. So it's you can't just be sort of the passive, like, well, I'm going to receive all of these images, but I'm not going to like contribute anything to this golden pot. And so what it does, I think, is it turns people who would normally find this behavior offensive and like you're reprehensible. Like you would, you know, I would say that most men have probably had a conversation with their parents, at least I would hope, where the parents say, like, you know, you don't do this, this feel, you know, this is wrong, like blah blah blah. But you get in an environment of group think when everyone else is doing it and suddenly some of these things feels like could feel like good ideas or don't feel as harmful as they might ever would have because it's sort of within this insular environment. You know, you think it's never going to get out. It's not that big of a deal. Everyone else is doing it. And I think it's sort of the, the failure to think reflectively about sort of the larger implications of what they're participating in and how they're impacting other people and themselves, frankly, is sort of frustrating and disappointing to say at least. Have you heard, I mean, is at this point, there's pretty strict revenge porn laws, both state by state and on the federal level. So have you heard of this being cracked down upon? Yeah. In the state of Florida, there's actually a case that's going through right now. And there was also one that was settled recently. And it was a, a sorority woman who was dating a fraternity man. And she actually had you know, they had, she had sent him some nudes while they were dating. And then like when they broke up, he circulated them in the fraternity group chat. She found out about it and that case settled. And I reached out to her for a comment and she was not able to talk because of sort of the legal terms of that settlement. But so I was able to kind of report on what I was able to get access to through public record laws and through other kinds of things. But yeah, you know, again, you think about, we might have laws against revenge porn, but you know, how many people have the luxury of actually pursuing a case. And we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars. And so that really, and not only that, it's just, it's multiple years and a lot of emotional stress. And so that's essentially what all of these cases really are, are sort of depending upon is that you, know, you, sure, it's wrong, you, it's criminal, but the odds of somebody actually pursuing it, a case against you are very small. The risk is very low because it's just that the legal system is not set up in a way to reward swift justice. Yeah, I, I copied this passage from your book about the top reasons women gave for not reporting their assault and respondents in this survey were allowed to select more than one response. One was the decision to handle it themselves, 48%. Uh, the belief that the incident wasn't serious enough to report 47%. The individual felt embarrassed, ashamed, or that it would be too emotionally difficult to report, 41%. And the individual didn't believe that the support resources could help them, 21%, and that they didn't want to get the perpetrator and trouble 24%. Yeah. I think the last one is actually really important and, uh, and probably underexplored too, is that 
I'm be careful about making blanket statements here, but you know, when you're accusing someone of something, whether it is right, it, it just anyone, but particularly if you're part of a friend group and your status within that friend group is contingent upon good relations with somebody else, you feel really reluctant. You want to say something and you want to complain and you want relief, but you also don't because you feel bad, like you don't want the person to get into trouble. And so if I had like a dollar for every time somebody came into my office that said, you know, I have been sexually assaulted, but I'm really worried about reporting because I don't want this person to, I don't want my assailant to get kicked out of college. He's a senior and he's worked really hard, or I don't want him to get, you know, removed from like whatever, whatever sort of privilege that he might have. And I like will always let it pause. And I turn to them and I say, why? Right? Like, like, why? Right? Why don't you want this? And it's like, well, I mean, and I said, you were, so I said, so it's okay for you to have emotion, to be in a state of like sort of permanent emotional distress and to have to go to counseling for years and to be leery of men and sort of not, you know, not have a sort of a dysfunctional social life for, or sort of emotional health for, and have a little, you know, some sort of period of time, but you don't want to cause an inconvenience to him because of a choice that he made. And so it's like when you like when you put it that way, right? I'm like, yeah, but it oftentimes it's still there's so much pressure. It's so much easier just to sort of let it go than actually do something about it. And I I am deeply sad that that's the case, but I also having seen it enough and worked with it enough to also understand and not judge women for not doing that. Like it is so delicate and so, so, so hard. We've listened to countless women who have done it by the book and just the police force in general has not been female friendly. So even if you do everything by the book and you think this person should be prosecuted, the chances of that person facing significant consequence are low and they'll gaslight you and blame you every step of the way. So that that is its own trauma, right? Like going against an institution that you previously believed existed to protect you and then learning that it doesn't is really, really traumatic in itself. Yeah. I think it's like learning that when you work for a company that HR isn't working for you, it's working for the company. <laughs> and, you know, and I, I think that sororities or women just in general have that similar experience with Title IX. And I we have a fabulous Title IX office at Rollins, but, and so this is not a personal critique, but just the way that Title IX is set up currently, it is not helpful in, to women, female victims. I mean, this is kind of a side note, but What's occurred to me in recent years is that like we have very little language to describe the various kinds of rape. And so what happens is, is sometimes it's just hard to articulate all of the factors that are going into the coercive behavior outside of like what happens to women when it's like complete forcible rape. Like we've started to build that language, things like being intoxicated and some guy taking advantage when they're intoxicated, like these other kinds of rape that are not just like forcible rape. So then like if you're going to, how do you describe to someone, like and I think this would happen in one of the stories that, that you had in the book, what ended up I think making her rape case compelling is that during the court, so during, she went on a date with this guy willingly. And then she basically, he starts to get aggressive with her sexually. So then she agrees to have sex with him. So he'll stop being aggressive, but then he just outright punches her, like completely physically assaults her and leaves enough evidence so that she can file a criminal complaint. But any other context, if she wasn't left with marks, he could argue she consented, right? Because he could argue to her that like you consented, like, cause she did consent cause she was trying to get him to stop being violent towards her. Right. Or like stop scaring her. So how then do you go and have the language and be like, I consented, but it was under threat and duress, or I felt threatened and duress in that situation. 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The language of of sexual assault is tricky. I mean, Amy Schumer uses the term grape, and I love that term, right? It's because it's it really is this sort of boundary of like you know, or this sort of blurry, blurry sense of like we not when we think of rape, we think of like mass stranger pulling you into a dark alley, and you know, we know that that is not statistically even close to like what ends up happening. Most of it is is happening in these sort of nebulous spaces where and on the college campus where alcohol is involved. That may start as consensual. That's also the tricky thing. So she did go on a date on him, right? And like, that's where it also gets tricky where it's like, okay, you consented all the way up here. And then like, now you didn't, but now you have to describe why it was revoked. And that puts the onus on you. Yeah, absolutely. I think when the way you described it as being this sense of being like propositioned or sort of being pressured so much and being in a state of inebriation, you're probably like tired, exhausted, or you just want to like, it's just easier just to give in than to actually sort of like push back forcibly in those instances. And then, you know, I think that those are complex situations, but, you know, obviously I, I don't think there it's any excuse. It doesn't change. The, the emotions are still the same. If you're not a willing partner and you, you say no, like no means no, and your body can say no too. And that has to be respected. Yeah. It requires such an element of trust because yeah, you have to like you can consent to a guy sexually and then they can turn out to be a psychopath that punches you in the face, right? Like that's the kind of thing where like somebody could big up all her text messages prior to that encounter and be like, oh, you were totally down to have sex with this guy. What happened? And like basically deny the idea that she didn't already want it, right? Like that's so tricky because like men take advantage of that situation because of how difficult it is to prove when somebody's violating your boundaries in the moment. Yeah. I don't have any really great answers for that. I think it's uh, within the one thing I will say, and this is not in defense of fraternities because of it is sort of just to provide a nuanced perspective is that, and um, you know, statistics on sexual assault and on rape are really, really hard to gain, to get access to in large part because we don't have a firm definition other than like forcible penetrable intercourse, which is very clear. Like everything else just feels, you know, feels murky or it, it feels it's, it's tricky. But the more rapes actually don't happen, they don't happen in fraternity houses, they happen in dorms and in residence hall, which doesn't mean that they, those, that the relationship or sort of the prelude to that didn't happen or didn't start at a fraternity house. But it, I think it speaks to the broader problem of and why we're as a culture and as um, we, we kind of struggle to really grapple with the full big spectrum of it is that because fraternities in that narrative serve as a really easy scapegoat, you know, like all of the rapists are sort of concentrated here. And if we could just shut fraternity down, or if we could just like, you know, turn off those parties, then like the rape problem will be solved. And the reality is, is like, no, actually, right there, we, we have a, a broader rape culture that, that is evolving and moving in, in and around these things. And so as somebody who's a mandatory reporter, but also as in a position on campus where, you know, I just work a lot with students and I have really strong relationships with them. I will, I will say that it's about 50, 50, like what, when they, that comes into my office, right? So I have just as many people who are not associated with fraternities or unaffiliated who are coming in and talking about rape as I do with, you know, sorority and fraternity members. But the stakes here are particularly high. Like sorority women are put in a, are are much less, in my experience, much less likely to report because they're socially bound into that community where an unaffiliated person, they're just like, fuck that. Like, sorry for my language. Like, yeah. Like they don't care, right? right. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're like, I don't care. Like I have no relationship to you. So it's just like, you know, you're not like I, my friends are still going to like me if I report this. So I think that there's a special danger for sorority women. Yeah, it's, it's sort of disappointing because I think obviously they all try really hard to present the image like this is a sisterhood. We've got your back. We're your friends for life. And then when just reading through your book and also talking to some, it's interesting because actually 
actually in some of my friends' cases, that was very much the case. And then other friends that like, they're basically, I can't stand any of my sorority sisters. And you start to realize like how loose those and flimsy those bonds actually are. (laughs) So I feel like the aspirational model of a sorority of actually being a female-based sisterhood where they exert power would be great if they actually exerted power, if they actually did that instead of like trying to spend so much time like being big me's to the fraternities. Yep. I think you're absolutely right. I think that the whole structure of the way that the fraternity and sorority system is set up, it really puts women at a disadvantage. You don't really give them a fair shot to really magnify and do what they want to do. I think if, for example, if sororities could live and de- could exist independently without a fraternity structure, then I think they would be great. They really wouldn't need to compete with anybody. They would they would really be sort of generally focused on themselves and on, and on sisterhood and bonds of, between women. But because of the way that fraternities are structured. It just, it it puts them in competition with other sororities, but then internally, it also creates a level of hierarchy, you know, within within themselves. And so, you know, I I think it's it's hard to be a college student and you're, you're emotionally developing, your brain's not fully developed. And so, you know, and a lot of people that age, um, students like feel the need to share everything, like every emotion that comes to their mind. And that doesn't usually end well. And so it's hard, like it's emotionally taxing to be between the ages of 18 and 22. So it's a chaotic moment in your life in general, but like that kind of, it's a perfect storm to kind of have it be a really negative experience. So your suggestion of having uh, sorority houses have the ability to throw parties is one way to subvert the power that the fraternities hold. Like what other suggestions do you have? Yeah, I mean, it's it's complex. So I would say that the other suggestion that I would have would be to think about how sororities can expand their dating pool. So yes, thank God. I was going to suggest that at one point, like the only men in existence are not the ones in your campus. And, and I guess it depends on the school because some of them are literally in the middle of nowhere. So I do feel bad for those people. But there's a lot of like schools that are smack dab in the middle of a major city or near one, and you don't need it. Like, you just don't need them. <laughs> yeah. There's a couple of cases that are really interesting. And I, I'm like, can't sort of reveal the names, but I talked to a number of people and, and some schools there. There's a, a public school that is kind of in the middle of nowhere. And that the dating culture, sort of the hookup culture on that campus is very much a sort of a, you know, 60-40 school. And it's really, really, you know, kind of what we've been described as sort of hookup-based culture. But like then what, what's ended up happening in that, that school mostly was sort of self-contained. But then there's a, a small private liberal arts college that's just it's a male only liberal arts college that's about 35 45 minutes away and so about five years ago the women at this public institution discovered this you know this male school right this all male school and so they have decided like they've actually have sort of structured ways in which they can get over to that campus and so right it's exactly right and so like they like bought a van and you know they they have designated drivers that like go over and so they've kind of taken over that campus and so like they're they've they've reduced the sort of surplus that they have and i also think like social media and online dating sites are also offer sort of a wider picture or sort of expand the dating market but i think some of my, my women will say that like the dating market is expanded to undesirables um and so that's not really helpful and so i so i think like in in theory it sounds great but it in practicality, right? It becomes a little bit more tricky. And then also part of it is just 
you know, what I always tell my sorority women is just to not to be a pygmisha. And I think it's just like grow into yourself that sometimes and it's, this sounds awful, but you know, it can be really, really hard to not chase after and feel to kind of do what everyone else is doing. But if you, if you're like really grow and develop yourself, like, and think about like college doesn't have to be the best four years of your life. It doesn't have to be the moment where you are the most sexually attractive and desirable and have the best kind of social life for many of the most successful and amazing women that I know college was kind of shitty and awful you know it was they were they struggled socially and they didn't have because they you know, they, they didn't have the desire or the ability to kind of chase that and then as they've grown into their 20s and early 30s it's just like they control the world and all of the people who and the men in particular who might not have given them a, a glance in college are kind of clamoring over them and i will point out to them right like do not be careful about paying attention to those guys because they didn't, they blew up my first shot, but I see that time and time again. And I, I think that that's also sort of a sad referent, referendum on our culture too. So it's not meant to be encouraging as message. It's also kind of sad that women have to just sort of are, aren't able to really live in the moment in their, in their twenties that they have to wait for that delayed sense of being desirable. Well, I would love to as a sexual strategy. And I think this is something that FDS will try to tackle is like, because realistically, if you're free of your parents the first time, like you just, you want to experiment. So I feel like it's hard to tell them like, don't do any of this kids. Da, da, da. It's going to be better later, you know, cause they said that in high school and you know, <laughs> like, so you're just, by the time you get to college, you're somewhat jaded of that, like message that like, Oh, wait till you're older, but find a way to like allow them the space to party and sexually experiment. If they choose to sexually experiment in an environment, that's not going to absolutely brutalize them for it. But the fraternity sorority environment brutalizes them for that, right? So it is like, they're not verbally slut shaming them, but they're creating an entire structure by which they're either being totally exploited or like I already said, brutalized because of their, I think, very natural inclination to want to sexually experiment. You raised a really good point there. I think that like it's really interesting. So most institutions that have fraternities and sororities have housing for them. There is a growing number and actually it kind of depends on where you are regionally, where they don't have like, the institution or for whatever reason, do not allow fraternity and sorority houses. And so sometimes they'll give fraternities and sororities wings of existing dorms and buildings. That doesn't solve the problem because you're still kind of uh, clustering them together. But I went to an institution in Georgia that doesn't have fraternity and sorority houses. And it's so, I mean, there's no opportunity for people to live together. They all have to kind of like, they can live in the dorms, but then most of them, when they become upperclassmen, move off campus and live in just conventional houses or apartment complexes with, you know, small group of friends. And that's really a sort of place where you see empowerment happen because, you know, you are a group of sorority women who are living together because you happen to be friends, maybe in a rented house, and you can throw parties there and you can control the shots. And right, and, and sort of determine and, and like you know decide which men you want to involve or you know in, in enter into that space or not. And like I am all for hookup culture. I think it doesn't have to be bad. I don't think it is rape and sexual assault don't have to swim in the same water as hookup culture, but it does unfortunately. And so I am not making an argument for for abstinence, but I what I am saying is that there are are ways in which it is possible at some institutions to kind of carve an alternate space. It's complicated be at many institutions because, especially residential campuses, where the school will like force you to live on campus for all four years, or right. And so, like, the, it's the movie theater model or like a restaurant model where the restaurant doesn't make its money off of the main course; it's drinks and desserts. And so, colleges and universities don't make their money from tuition; they make it from room and board. So that's why they do it. So again, the, the institution's complicit in this, one hundred percent. I love that idea. I mean, I think I think 
sororities making movements to be more independent and then creating an environment in which they can pick and choose the men who are involved would absolutely change everything, right? Because like at the end of the day, that's honestly how it should be anyways, because the fraternities are only as powerful as the amount of women they can invite. So if the sororities like band together, decide not to come or uh, create their own alternative parties where rich they're, they basically have bouncers uh, to decide which men can get in and out. And this is how it functions in the real world, by the way, like most bars, like they let women in and then they pick and choose which men are allowed in because they don't want the creeps in there, you know, like, and the broke guys in there not buying drinks and also like creeping out the women so they don't come. So I feel like if they went to like the club model and then gave women a lot more power in that environment, or like if they're, I guess, especially if you're unaffiliated with the sorority, but even then like some way to like, uh, diversify the pool of men that so that you're not like just desperate to like get these fraternities to accept you like why can't you like so discord between the fraternities like I, I don't know strategic my my mind is like let's start shit between the two fraternities like there's so many ways to take back the power that i, I hope they explore yeah i also think it's really fascinating because like fraternities and sororities they have a big presence on campus, a big cultural presence, and they have you know, a big social presence. And so, But the numeric presence on campus is usually really small. So my college is an anomaly. We have a, a you know, disproportionate number of, of fraternity and sorority members relatively to the, the other population. But on most campuses, it usually tops out at around 10 to 12 percent of the student body, which is nothing, right? Nothing. And so, again, like they're flashy. They're out there. They wear the same, you know, they have matching outfits. And so you see them. But when you really kind of pull back and say, this is really only like 10% of the people on campus. And so there's like 90% of other people who are unaffiliated and that I could party with. You know, I think that there needs to be a better way to get other people together that are not affiliated. And what fraternities and sororities do provide a structure, a, a place to go, right? A group of people that are pooling money to throw a party. And so it, it is the sort of desire for more of a club-based model that we're, that's accessible to everybody because if you don't have a fake ID, you can't get into a club, but you can't get into a fraternity party. And so that's the, that's the limit, right? Is it excludes most of the undergraduate population and they don't have access to that till they're, they're you know, the middle of their senior year. Not formally, but yeah. <laughs> no, well, not formally, yeah. but right. And I, but also I think like, as I will say, right, sure, there's most students have, that I know of, have fake IDs of varying degrees of quality. And some of them have sort of a stash of them, but you know, it's unreliable. Like when you go to a club and you're underage and you've come in with a group of friends at uh, the odds that all of you are going to get in, that all of your ideas are going to work are very low. And then you have to make a decision. It's unpredictable. So you're going to go out. You can't really guarantee that all of you are going to get into every place you go to. So it, it's a, uh, you know, why would you risk that? I worked as a bottle girl and like, I was actually shocked to the extent that the bouncers at the clubs of different clubs I worked. A lot of them like are practically like forensic scientists. They don't even look. Yeah. Like they, they're so, they see so many IDs that they can spot it pretty well. It's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's a game that we are playing with, you know, China essentially about the bouncers in China, like who can produce the best fake ID and, you know, to be able to detect it. So I get it. Yeah. All right. So this was a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you for having me. It was delightful and I love your podcast. And I'm glad I got to use my favorite word, Pikmisha, at least once during this. Yeah. <laughs> right. Didn't get to use AFC, but uh, we'll, we'll, you can add that in later. <laughs> so this is a great book. So the book is The Benefits of Friends Inside the Complicated World of Today's Stories and Fraternities. A really, really great read. I, really, really fascinating, insightful. And I hope uh, anybody who's in college who's listening to this take something away that they don't have to be powerless in that environment because it can't it can really feel like you're powerless in that environment and like now that 
I think uh, Jenna really beautifully explains the dynamics that are working against you. You can strategize how to take back your power in those environments. So I think that's our show, right? So yeah, that's our show. Uh, check us out on our website. If you want to discuss this episode, thefemaledatingstrategy.com forward slash forum. Also uh, follow us on Twitter at fem.strat. Actually, I should have asked you, can I follow you anywhere, Jana? Yeah, you can follow them on my Instagram. Yeah, LinkedIn. They can look on my website and definitely shoot me an email. The email is jmatthews, J-M-A-T-1-T-H-E-W-S at rollins.edu. You can find the book on Amazon, but I would love to hear from you. Yes. And you can also follow us on Instagram at underscore the female dating strategy and follow us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the female dating strategy for weekly bonus content. Thanks for listening, queens.